You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following is an Airwaves Media Podcast. We all have to eat, but what we eat can often define us or at least symbolize us, like poutine in Canada or spanakopita in Greece. There's a dish in Britain of such popularity, such cultural significance, that it's been called the country's national dish. It's not fish and chips, Yorkshire pudding, or bangers and mash. It's chicken tikka masala, an Indian dish of marinated chicken chunks in a creamy curry sauce over rice. So is it Indian or is it British? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Lots of foods don't come from where you think, either the modes and method by which they were created or their geographical origin. Take Philadelphia cream cheese, for example, which is made in Beaverdam, Wisconsin, and Lowville, New York, neither one of which is in Pennsylvania. It's sold in Philly, sure, but it's not from there, and it never has been. This versatile soft cheese, without which a bagel lives its short life unfulfilled, was invented in New York in 1872. It was named after the city of brotherly love in 1880 out of pure marketing because the Philly region was known for good dairy products. Like when companies put a grandma on the label to make things seem all homey and Hamish. As you know, I love a bonus fact dropped into a conversation, mine or someone else's. Sometimes I get it wrong, repeating an improperly vetted item. But on the really choice days, Someone else gets it wrong, and I get to correct them. So, Ray, this is for you. For t'was from my friend Ray that I heard that one of the most popular dishes in American Chinese takeaway, General Tso's chicken, is named for a brutal warlord who would have prisoners cut into pieces and fed to each other, or people were fed their families or some other outrageous claim. So who was General Tso? And how did he get a tasty, tasty chicken dish named after him? General So was a real person. Zhu Zongtang, a Chinese statesman and military hero from the Hunan province, a sort of General MacArthur type in the 19th century. General So's chicken is a dish of battered, fried, and sauced chicken bits with veggies that dates to around 1991. At least according to Hunan-born Taiwanese chef Peng Changkui, who claimed to be the first to serve it at his restaurant in China before bringing it with him to Peng's restaurant in Manhattan. However, the proprietors of Shunli Palace, also in New York, say that their chef, T.T. Wang, invented it in 1972. A well-known and talented chef, Peng orchestrated and supervised the grand banquets of the Chinese nationalist government until they were toppled by Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in 1949. 
and Peng fled to Taiwan. During the 50s, Taiwan became a haven for classical Chinese cuisine. Peng opened a restaurant in the capital of Taipei and for years served food inspired by traditional Hunanese cooking, including the now-famous General So's chicken. The original character of the dish, if you believe Peng's version, was more typically Hunanese. Heavy, sour, hot, and salty. And that definitely wouldn't have salacious undertones if I said it in my sexy radio voice. Might put that on the Patreon as an exclusive. This was definitely not the popcorn chicken and caro syrup version that Westerners are accustomed to. The case could be made that Peng created the original General So's chicken, but the American version came from Shunli Palace's executive chef, Sung Ting Wang. He's been credited with helping to popularize spicy Sichuan cuisine in the States and maybe cribbing Peng's menu. He made a trip to Taiwan in the 70s, looking for inspiration for the restaurant he was about to open. To suit the tastes of his American clientele, he updated the recipe for a crispier batter and a sweeter sauce. The man definitely knows his audience. When Peng opened his New York City restaurant the following year, he was furious to discover that New Yorkers were already eating a version of his dish and acting like he was the one that ripped off Wang, not the other way around. In a classic case of, if you can't beat them, join them, Peng adapted his recipe to suit American palates, as Wang had. As for why it was named after a Chinese military hero from the 1800s, no one knows for sure. But it could be as simple as the general being from the chef's home province, and nothing as salacious as punitive cannibalism. Isn't that a great phrase, though? Punitive cannibalism. Bonus fact, while its exact origins are unknown and unknowable, chop suey gets its name from sap suey, a Cantonese dish that translates to miscellaneous pieces or miscellaneous leftovers. And there's no way in hell that was inflected correctly. Chinese takeout wouldn't be worth the DoorDash fees if you didn't get a fistful of fortune cookies at the end. It should come as no surprise that those crispy little folded tweels with a message inside, sometimes cryptic, sometimes piss-takingly obvious and banal, are as authentic as Chinese chicken salad at a Presbyterian potluck. They come instead from San Francisco, specifically Japanese restaurateurs, so it's like doubly inauthentic. A tasty sesame seed treat similar to fortune cookies was made in the southern Japanese capital of Kyoto in the 19th century, and they were folded around paper blessings, predictions, or even curses, called omikuji. They may have come to America through San Francisco's Japanese tea garden, though the owner of a Japanese restaurant in L.A. is under the impression he was the first, even though his supposed year came later. During World War II, when Japanese Americans had their homes, businesses, and freedom stolen by the government, Chinese bakers took over the industry, and the recipe changed when the restaurants changed hands. Fortune cookies might have stayed a regional specialty, if not for UFC grad Shuk Yi, who invented a fortune cookie folding machine in 1973, and the rest is crispy, sweet, God, why am I doing keto again, history. 
I know in the bottom of the insatiable pit that is my stomach that I've never eaten an authentic Chinese dish in my life. Just as I know that all the Italian food I've eaten is Italian-American, you'd do well to avoid trying to order spaghetti and meatballs in Italy, unless you have an incredibly high tolerance for embarrassment. Okay, Italy and China are pretty far away, even if we ignore how people from those places came here. But what's our excuse when it comes to Mexican food? Mexico's right there. I've been close enough to it to have my cell phone jump to a tower on the Mexico side. This was when we were on our Game of Thrones burlesque tour, and we went through El Paso, Texas, uh, which fittingly means the step, because it's right there. And y'all can at me on the social media if you want. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie LaBouche, where I live stream a portion of the recording of each episode. I think the Juarez side looked a lot better. Remind me some time to tell you about the motel room that they gave us to change in, in which none of us would even put down our suitcases, let alone remove our clothing. That would probably make a good TikTok video, too. Take chili con carne, for example. The name means chilies with an E with meat, which could describe almost anything. Chili with an I, as we know it, probably traces its lineage back to chuck wagon cooking on cattle drives in Texas. Or for a more gritty backstory, some say it was devised in the state's prison kitchens as a cheap way to feed prisoners. Chile made its way to the rest of the country, nay, the world, in 1893, when a San Antonio chili stand was set up at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. For my true crime buffs, Yes, that is the same 1893 Chicago Columbian Exposition that provided cover and victims for H.H. H. Holmes and his murder castle. Though if one more person tries to call him America's first serial killer, I may have to throw a chair. Deadpool fans will be familiar with chimichangas, essentially a deep-fried burrito. All good words there. But a non-comic fan in Mexico might not be. They were supposedly invented in Tucson, Arizona in 1922, when the owner of the El Charo Café, the city's oldest Mexican restaurant, Monica Flynn, accidentally dropped a burrito into a vat of fry oil. Look, if you accidentally drop something the size and density of a burrito into a fully hot deep fryer, OSHA has some questions. Now, naturally, this origin is also contested, with a Phoenix restaurateur named Woody Johnson claiming he invented the chimichanga in Phoenix, but not until 1946. At least it's closer to being Mexican food than a taco salad, a large fried flour tortilla shaped like a bowl, filled with generally fast food taco ingredients and a tiny, tiny amount of lettuce. This comes to us not from Mexico, but from Disneyland. Charles Elmer Doolin, a candy store manager in San Antonio and the inventor of Fritos, based on a recipe he bought off a Mexican immigrant, created the Tacup, or Tacup, Tacup, T-A-C-U-P, no hyphen. I guess you got to say it like a Western Australianer, Tacup, in the 1950s. A taco shell shaped like a fluted pastry into which he heaped the fillings. The Frito Company opened an, if you squint hard enough at it, Mexican restaurant called Casa de Fritos in Disney in 1955 with the tack-up in tow. I still don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced. 
people really dug it, and soon other restaurants were making their own. What about queso dip, the creamy Tex-Mex equivalent of fondue that should be mandatory, not extra, and is related to dishes from northern Mexico, like queso fundido, melted cheese, or queso flameado, flamed cheese? But they are distant cousins to the queso you get north of the border, which started life, as far as we can tell, as a melted block of Velveeta processed cheese and a small can of Rotel diced tomatoes and green chilies. Still, it is gooder than hell and proof positive that there are use cases for processed cheese food product, aka American cheese. Now look, I know my voice is right now reaching people all over the globe, especially the European parts, where their love of a good cheese exceeds even my own. I come to bury American cheese not to praise it. Well, that's not exactly true. For or against American cheese is not the hill I'm dying on. Not today, anyway. Speaking of Europe, the story of American cheese actually starts in Switzerland. In 1911, Messrs. Walter Gerber and Fritz Stettler were trying to produce cheese with a larger shelf life, more suitable for export, and they combined local Emmental cheese with the preservative sodium citrate. This produced a smooth, melty cheese that held up better. It was Cheddar's at-bat five years later in the U.S., when Canadian-born James Lewis Kraft patented the process. He wrote in his patent claim that he intended to convert cheddar into a shelf-stable product that could be stored without going bad while maintaining the characteristic flavors of the cheese. His brother Norman Kraft patented a box lined with metal foil into which the still-soft cheese could be poured. The result? A practical and portable way to bring cheese to millions, including troops stationed overseas during the World Wars. According to the New York Times, Norman, now Kraft's head of research, wanted a way to make the product even more convenient. In 1935, he began experimenting with ways to sell the cheese pre-sliced like a loaf of bread, rather than as a brick, the hallmark of all fine food coming in brick form. It would take all the way up to 1950 before Kraft Deluxe processed slices Eight naked cheese slices stacked one atop the other hit the grocery dairy case. The last piece of the puzzle came six years later with the process to individually wrap each slice, making the product super convenient and environmentally chaotic evil. But it was the 50s. They didn't have the environment yet. Busy moms, growing young kids, and those who simply can't be asked love the convenience to say nothing of the unmatched, and I mean this, unparalleled quality of it in a grilled cheese sandwich. A toasty, I believe, for those across the pond. But there is a strong anti-fan base, and there was from the beginning. Gourmands and dairymen who were none too keen, claiming this product wasn't even legally cheese. Per FDA regulations, a cheese must contain at least 51% cheese curd. The ingredient list for a product like Kraft Singles, boasting milk, whey, milk protein, milk fat, calcium phosphate, salt, sodium citrate, whey protein, sodium phosphate, scorbic acid, cheese culture, enzymes, annatto, paprika, it just didn't cut mustard. 
See, I said mustard there because we're talking about cheese, but the phrase is really to cut or to pass muster, like the military term. Rules are rules, and thus the blue cuboid packages say pasteurized processed cheese food. The anti-American cheese crowd didn't feel that that was going to be enough. The term was still too close to cheese. It has the word cheese right in it. One of the preservatives, sodium phosphate, can also be found in embalming fluid for preserving corpses. Now, if you try to say, Kraft Singles has embalming fluid chemicals in it, I'm going to have to come over there and talk to you. There was actually a lobbying effort to have the product officially labeled embalmed cheese. But federal regulators weren't convinced, or they had better things to do, so they settled on the term processed cheese instead. Entering from the right, contender three, the new fan base, professional chefs and diehard foodies who've rediscovered American cheese's greatest strength, its meltability. Sodium citrate, along with sodium phosphate and sorbic acid, emulsify the product, giving it a creamy texture and making a stable cheese that doesn't split if you turn your back on the saucepan for like five seconds because you need to turn the fish over. Why are you such a temperamental diva, cheese sauce? Chefs are not only giving American cheese a go at glory in cheese sauces, but even soups and ramen, anywhere where a creamy mouthfeel would spark joy. What sparks joy for me is when people take time out of their day to review the podcast or the Your Brain on Facts book. We are all out of podcast reviews and I'm on my very last book review. So if you've ever meant to review the stuff and just never got around to it, oh, this would be a super great week to do that. Audrey over on Goodreads says, I was first introduced to Moxie via her podcast because friends kept trying to get me to listen. I went to my player, typed facts, scrolled randomly looking for a female name, clicked, and on the third and last attempt, I found it. The best podcast ever. Nice voice, good pace, and more of a story than fact, 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 etc. Why say all this? Because her book is her podcast on paper. I'm a slow reader because ADHD is a thing, and even a book I love, I stop reading randomly. But that didn't matter. The short story-like facts with a non-sleepy writing style made my ADHD happy. Thank you so much, Audrey, for a review that functions as both a book and a podcast review. As always, big thanks to folks who support the show financially at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts or coffee or ko-fi, still don't know, don't care, ko slash fi.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Folks like Ray, Pigeon, Paul, Marissa, Araya and Irie on Patreon, and Zach and Jules over on Coffee. Of course, the best and most appreciated way to help a podcast is just to tell people about it. But if you want to hang out with people who already know and enjoy the show, go to yourbrainonfacts.com social, from which you can choose to go to our Facebook group or our subreddit. And if you go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, you can pick up the Russian Warship Go F Yourself shirt, raising money for the International Red Cross. And yes, I finally got around to making my own Our Flag Means Death merchandise. You can't even trust a food with a place in its name to be from that place. In my crosshairs today, the Danish. Pastry folded 27 times to achieve gorgeous, buttery, flaky layers. Why did I write a food episode the same week I cut out all carbs? 
Seriously, I would shank a stranger for a cheese danish. Even if these delicious little bastards have the temerity to not be from Denmark. Because as the story goes, when bakery workers in Denmark went on strike in 1850, their bosses hired pastry workers from Vienna who brought the recipes for things they knew how to make from home, including what we call Danish. By the time the strike ended, the pastry had already become popular, so the returning Danish bakers had to learn to make it themselves. They tweaked the recipe to make it more Danish, the adjective, with more fat and eggs, and rechristened it Wienerbrot. Now this leaves me a little conflicted. I love a Danish, even the individually plasticed vending machine kind, but I'm also pro-union and generally anti-scab. It's like when I found out that corgis get their adorable dimensions from intentionally perpetuated dwarfism. And now that thought is always in the back of my head when I'm racing across a busy street to ask a stranger if I can pet their dog. Now, food history is a lot like the end of the movie Clue. That's how it could have happened, but how about this? Tangential bonus fact, when Clue was released in theaters, you only got one of the three potential endings, and you didn't know which one you were going to get. Director Jonathan Lynn had it in his head people would gladly keep buying tickets until they lucked into all three endings. Theaters then tried scheduling for the individual endings, but nobody wanted to pay to watch the movie multiple times. It's a major reason it bombed at the box office. Anyway, while Austrians did bring the pastry to Denmark in the 19th century, according to the Danish Bakers' Union, who sound like they should be authorities on the subject, the Danish started not in Austria even, but in France two centuries earlier. That origin story, still colored with Apocrypha, has it that it was all a happy accident. Apprentice baker Claudius Jolie forgot to add butter to the flour and hurriedly added it in media res. Rather than getting sacked or just skating by when no one noticed, he was praised by his boss for the amazing product that resulted. In 1622, Jolie opened a café in Paris, serving the Thousand Leave pastry, and opened a second shop in Florence, Italy, from whence the recipe traveled to Austria to be carried on to Denmark. Now, all this talk of France, Austria, and pastries will put my cleverest listeners in mind of the croissant, which we think of as as quintessentially French as insert tired unfunny stereotype here. Legend has it, Viennese bakers working through the night heard Ottoman Turks trying to tunnel beneath the city during a 1683 invasion. They alerted the city's defenses, in essence saving it from an Ottoman siege. In celebration, the bakers created a pastry symbolizing the crescent moon, a prominent symbol on the Turkish flag. The usual story, and one I've put forth myself, sorry to say, is that the homesick young queen Marie Antoinette introduced to France the kipful, a curved cookie precursor to the croissant, and by extension, the croissant itself. Yes, I am going to be pronouncing it croissant. Buckle up. Trouble is, evidence for this is thin on the ground, an especially significant gap considering how extremely in the public eye Marie Antoinette was. What evidence there is 
points instead to the croissant being popularized by Auguste Sang, who opened the first Viennese bakery in Paris in 1838, 45 years after Marie Antoinette made the acquaintance of the patriotic shortener. Zong's bakery was a solid success, thanks to newspaper advertising and elaborate window displays. He also patented a steam oven that used damp hay to give his pastries a lustrous sheen. I use an egg wash, but, you know, you do you. Zhang also had his fingers in banking and mining and left the Paris boulangerie scene to start Austria's first daily newspaper, amassing a fortune along the way. Within a few decades, the croissant was firmly entrenched as a staple of French breakfast food. On a visit to Paris in 1872, Charles Dickens praised the dainty croissant on the boudoir table and bemoaned the comparatively dismal monotony of English bread and breakfast foods. Hey, he's British. He said it, not me. And now a word from our sponsors. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class. 
part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to Zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Many historical figures are credited with creating or popularizing different foods. Thomas Jefferson keeps getting credit for things like macaroni and cheese or bringing ice cream to the colonies. And this phenomenon isn't restricted to we-can't-find-any-primary-sources times. A major public figure created what is now considered a dish of national identity less than a century ago. Picture it. Siam, 1938. Well, actually, we need to go back six years before that. When Fibon Sung Kron, usually called Fibon, and I like my odds better with that one, had been highly placed in a military coup that took the power from Thailand's monarchy, crushed a rebellion and was made Minister of Defense, and then became Prime Minister in 1938. Siam was an ethnically diverse country with strong regional identities, and Fibon had taken away the thing that tied them all together the monarchy. Siam was also surrounded by French and British colonies. It had never been colonized itself, but that felt like more of a yet situation. So you've got a new leader, threat of foreign incursion, and concerns of country cohesion. How can I kill three birds with one stone, Fibon must have pondered. His solution? Noodles. Fibon, who had been educated in Europe, thought that Siam was behind the times, positively provincial. He wanted to craft it into a strong, nationalistic, and modern country, full of productive, patriotic people, at least according to the 12 cultural mandates he issued. Some of these mandates were weightier than others, ranging from wanting people to wear hats in public, okay, to changing the name of the whole damn country to Thailand. Now, to go on to create a national identity. An army marches on its stomach, and you can know a people by their food. As part of his campaign, Fibon ordered the creation of a new national dish, what would come to be called Pad Thai. Pad Thai is a direct descendant of Chinese Kui Tio Fat Thai, or stir-fried rice noodles Thai style, with flavors like mandarin, palm sugar, and chilies. It is so good when it's done right, and the first thing I order when we try a new Thai restaurant. It was having noodles rather than rice and stir-frying that set that apart from most Thai food. Fibon started promoting the dish. But don't go picturing brightly colored posters with Fibon smiling or anything like Michelle Obama hanging out on Sesame Street shilling for Big Vegetable. Remember, your man here is basically a military dictator, a phrase that is more awful than the sum of its parts, like a Reese's peanut butter cup made of boiled liver and regret. In an effort to build a nation with a firm and everlasting foundation, Fibon said in a public address in 1941, the government is forced to reform and reconstruct the various aspects of society, especially its culture. Government and forced should not be that close together either. 
most of Fibon's strategies for forging a common, modern identity were pretty direct. Many of them were coercive. The government reformed and standardized the Thai language and banned other languages and dialects from schools. It closed the Islamic courts of Thai's Malay minority. They reformed school curriculums to highlight the continuity and shared history of Thailand, and I'm sure all of that information was totally factually accurate. Fibon also followed the fascist handbook on how to create a cult of personality. Sadly, not the one-hit wonder from Living Color. Be sure to look that up if you're not old like me. Fibon's portrait hung everywhere. His birthday was made a national holiday. They formed paramilitary youth groups. And state media related his every brilliant word and deed, like a fawning grandmother in a nursing home who could finally get one over on Mrs. Axelby and her family of doctors. They called him simply the leader. Not every policy was frightening. I just want to give a full context of what was happening. Fibon also told everyone to wear European pants and skirts and how often they should call their relatives. Not all scary, but all taken very seriously. Fibon didn't even let people use a world war as an excuse for not fully towing the new modern line. For the Pad Thai portion of the Buy Thai campaign, the Public Welfare Department distributed recipes and even gave away free food carts so people could have their own Pad Thai stand. And just to be doubly sure that his people ate the right noodles, banned Chinese and other foreign food vendors. Noodle is your lunch, became the slogan. By the end of World War II, the dish was in like Flynn and eventually spread around the world. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Chicken tikka masala didn't come from India, but it did come from Indian chefs. Though stories clash about who actually thought to modify a butter chicken recipe to suit British palates. In 2001, the Foreign Secretary Robin Cook hailed it as a symbol of modern multicultural Britain, a perfect illustration of the way Britain absorbs and adapts external influences. Or as comedian Tommy Tiernan put it, invade a lot of other countries and have those people follow you home. The dish, now served in Indian restaurants around the world, is generally considered to be Indian at heart. Remember, you can always find the source links for the show and the full script at yourbrainonfacts.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the Airwave Media Network, along such other great shows as Art Smart, Clever, The Explorers Podcast, and The History of the Great War. Find out more at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.